Welcome to Lawyers on the Block, a crypto law podcast from Roman Kubiak and myself, Kieran Forsyth, in the Private Wealth Group here at Hugh James. Over the series, we'll be looking at some of the major issues and hot topics in the crypto and digital asset space right now. Trigger warning, we are lawyers, so we'll inevitably talk about some of the legal issues involved. But don't worry, we'll try to keep the legal jargon to a minimum. How best can you secure your crypto? Do crypto markets need increased centralization and stronger regulation to protect investors? Is a central bank digital currency, or CBDC, the best way to go about protecting investors? These are the questions we asked a global cybersecurity advisor from ESET called Jake Moore in this week's episode of The Lawyers on the Block. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another podcast by the team here at at Hugh James on digital assets and all things crypto and blockchain and all the exciting stuff. Very excited to have a guest speaker with us today, Jake Moore, who is a global cybersecurity advisor. Jake, you've been on press and media, etc. So we're really, really, really excited to have you on board. Thank you for coming. And uh, joined by Roman Kubiak as well, who's the head of department. And so, Jake, if uh, if you don't mind, would you would you mind just introducing yourself and tell tell everyone what you do and and why you're here today, really? Sure. Well, thanks for having me. So, yeah, I'm the global cybersecurity advisor at ASET, which is an internet security company. But my job is to really advise businesses and the public on all things to do with cybersecurity. Businesses are desperately in need in advice. They tend not to know where to turn, and the whole industry, it's moving so quickly, people are struggling to keep on top of it. And so it's always good to get that unbiased and trust from a voice. And I like to offer that because I come from the police force as well. So hopefully people see me as not a salesperson. I really couldn't sell you anything, but I like to talk about the police side of things as well. So I spent 14 years in my local police force in Dorset. The majority of that time, I investigated all things to do with digital forensics and cybercrime. Extremely interesting. As you can imagine, every day was different. Always have a load of cases working on at once. That could be murder, could be fraud, missing children, you name it. These days, everything has a digital element, whether it's a phone, a USB, or a laptop. And it was incredibly interesting to find everything out about these suspects' lives, as you can really imagine, and then try and find the evidence to go to Crown Court and hopefully put those people behind bars. When you say digital forensics, mm. so you're, are you looking at things, I mean, the, the, from a lawyer's view, we see things like the hot word that comes up a lot is look at the metadata. But in layman's terms, what, what would that look like for you when you were there, Joe? Yeah, so for example, let's take a, an image, a photo. So yeah. in a photo, you can see something in the photo physically, but there'll be a lot of data that's hidden behind it, the metadata. And that could be the date and time. It could be going one step further. You could find out if it's been edited, what software was used, even the GPS coordinates, that kind of stuff. And that's critical in any sort of offense, trying to place someone in a particular place, or it could be their alibi, for example. So we're not always there just to catch someone out. We're trying to maybe prove or disprove. But um, when we go on to what we call cyber offenses, we're looking at cyber forensics, it changes slightly. So 
let's go back to Facebook. Now, Facebook can strip some of the metadata from the image when you upload it to its platform. That's because it doesn't want to look after all that extra data. That can be far too much for its storage. It might as well just have the image. That's what we're there to see. But some places such as Dropbox or other cloud storage, that will also keep the the metadata, which is imperative in any investigation. So that's really vital for for police investigations. So I guess the Dropbox analogy would be like a primary source, whereas the Facebook would be a secondary source almost. You're looking at Facebook just for the proof of the existence of the photo. The the metadata gives you the genesis of that, I guess, does it? Yeah, that's right. Interestingly, once you've got a photo that's been deleted from a computer, it strips some of the data. So when people delete something from a computer, they might assume wrongly that it's gone forever, but it's effectively like ripping out the chapter contents page from the beginning of a book. The chapters still exist, but you just don't know where it is. And so we would have software that could go and find that photo but it might not have the created date. So if you're trying to prove something, it doesn't have a date that goes with it, that can actually be a little bit of a difficulty. But there are sometimes ways of doing it and all operating systems work slightly different. And I was there when smartphones came around. So, I mean, that sounds years old now, but it really was a difficult time transitioning to start looking at smartphones, which is a massive part of any investigation in any type of offence. You're bound to have some sort of evidence-led on the smartphone. Mm. So talk about that, I guess. So in terms of a standard investigation involving a smartphone, what sort of things do you look at? I remember, do you remember the Serial podcast? The podcast there was looking at um, whether Chakul Adnan Saeed was guilty of murder. And the thing in that case was, I think that was pre-smartphone, so they were looking at triangulation based on GPS, GPS. but I guess it's a few steps on from there. Yeah, so triangulation is something that you go to the providers for, so the Vodafones, the O2s, the EEs, and you can triangulate roughly where the phone might be at a certain time. Quickly, criminals got used to the fact that they wouldn't either take a phone or they'd have a burner phone for those occasions when they're going out and about. But you might have a premeditated murder that would leave the phone behind. But those most murders that we saw particularly were just random murder when people just got angry and and would stab someone 30 times. And and that's when you could... Yeah, and and you could then position where they were because their phone would be on them. But moving on from there, we've got the smartphone, which has got so much more data. Mm. But you can get the triangulation from the providers. However, the difficulty is getting into the phone. Now, we've had many cases where uh, law enforcement will say, right, we need to have the code to get into this device. We used to be able to break into them very, very easily. We used to actually buy software from China to go and (laughs) get through a four-digit PIN code. At most, it took 24 hours. Just a bit of fun. We used to start the number. So it would be a little machine, tiny little box, and it would say, where do you want to start? Now, you would, you might think, well, let's start at all the zeros. It's only got to go through from all the zeros to all the nines. We didn't start there. We'd always start at 1970 because the amount of people that would use their birth year, <laughs> by the time it had got to 2000, because it would literally just go through one by one. Yeah. So within about 30 minutes, we'd usually have got in and go, oh, why didn't I try that 1985? Of course it was. That was his year of birth. That's amazing. 
I'm going to pause this podcast while I change a few passcodes. <laughs> oh my god! Don't talk about this. But no, that that's actually it. I mean, we're not here to to go and teach people everything about that. But yeah, people still use passcodes that are related to them, pin codes, passwords. It just seems yeah. to be this human way of remembering. I mean, another time I will go massively into password managers and, and how you can go and generate. But yeah, the, the police side of things, that was funny. We, we used to abuse the fact that people would have simple passcodes. And if we've got the powers to get into their phone, then we can use any sort of software to do that. And so we would get into most phones. You might think that when fingerprint readers came out, it got more difficult. Well, no, because you still needed a passcode. Some phones still didn't have a passcode on. That was always funny. But then it did get more difficult. A few years ago, actually when I left, about four years ago, we'd had about a year where we just couldn't get into iPhones. And you might think it's the police trying to crack the encryption. And let's say iPhones, they have incredibly good encryption. Of course they do. And I'm a big believer in encryption. So if you lose your phone, someone else can't get into it. But the fact is that there are other criminal groups and even nation state actors that are always trying to find the vulnerability in a device. And as soon as they do crack it, it gets out on the dark web. Some of the time it's used by official government sources, the NCA, for example, and they'll, they'll know about a vulnerability, but use it to their advantage, get into these devices, and then we get the information. But backtracking a slight bit, you've got to have that device in your hand in the lab to make that happen. And that's the difficulty. If you can't even work out who the hell it is that's committed this crime, you're not going to have any physical devices to go through. So cyber forensics works very well with digital forensics, but one is very reactive and one is very proactive. Yeah. And James, did you ever come across any theft of digital assets of value? And, and did, did, did that cross the desk at all? Well, has it more recently? Well, yeah, it's it's definitely increased in the last few years when I've been out of the force. And I still speak to my colleagues who are in there saying, you won't believe how much more difficult it's become. Now, I left because one of the reasons I actually got frustrated. I wasn't going to court as much. I wasn't going into the Crown Court saying, I got this guy absolutely banged to rights. Here's my report. The guy's going to have to go guilty. That used to happen. All right? He'd get to court on the first day of the trial and he'd go down to his, his lawyer's advice to go guilty and everyone walks home. But it got more difficult. In fact, we wouldn't even go to court some of the times because we just didn't have that evidence because you can't follow the money. I used to work very closely with the economic crime unit and they would follow the money from one account to another account to a yacht. It was as simple as that. And they would find the photos on the computer of said yacht and maybe even a few emails between them saying, this is what I'm going to buy with it and so on. But they've got better. And of course, if I were a criminal, I would instantly try and get it into cryptocurrencies. That's just default for how they run. You can follow them, but you can't necessarily always see where they are coming out as physical cash. Very, very difficult. It's not impossible, though. If you throw into the mix the dark web, so Tor, the Onion Router, very easy to have. It's legal to have on your computer. So it doesn't necessarily mean immediately they are a criminal. It's just, it became another hurdle. And that was probably the biggest hurdle. So when I was in the unit and we had a cryptocurrency offense, absolutely, definitely using Tor, probably using a VPN as well. If we ever got the computers in, we'd then scratch our heads thinking, where are we even going to find this needle in this haystack? Is there a needle even in there? That's so interesting. And I know when we were speaking before the podcast, you were saying that in terms of the whole, the way you look at 
cryptocurrency in particular is that it, it may not be as formal as other routes. And I, I think you use the word con, and I, I'm not saying you know that you think it is a con, but just jokingly, you said it was, and saying that the the, the, the discussion would be interesting, which it is. And <laughs> what's what's your take on that? Because obviously, a lot of people are using it, you know, as, as retail in, investors, and there's some value, yeah. there's well, lots of value in it. Is it faith-based value? Or? Yeah. So uh, this is the other side of cryptocurrencies. I think it's it's really held as a, an incredible piece of armor for cyber criminals. It's their yeah. their way of blocking out law enforcement, seeing what they're doing, far greater than any police detective ever imagined 20 years ago, because uh, it's no more behind the, the pub in a dark alleyway exchanging money or so. This is a very clever tactic. Mm-hmm. But the other side of it, which is probably what your listeners are probably thinking about, is the whole investment side of things. I hate that word when I connect it with cryptocurrencies, but I have to use it because it is a form of investment. Yeah. It's not like the fact that it's meant to be used to spend. So if you remember a few years ago, a few cool coffee shops would come out and say, hey guys, you can buy a coffee using Bitcoin. And a few early adopters would be like, oh, this is amazing. This was probably even before Apple Pay. And I remember you could use an app through your phone to go and buy a coffee. It felt like you're in the future. But then the next day, that coffee was like going up. And then the next day, your coffee is now £10. And the next week, it's £20. You think, whoa, I, I shouldn't be using cryptocurrency. Maybe I should just store it in my account and watch it go up. Not like anything we'd ever seen at this speed. I think it was 2017, I realized, whoa, Bitcoin is actually insane. If I just pause for one moment, there's this hilarious story that I think about with my sergeant at the time, back in around 2010, 11, he said, guys, guess what? Have you heard of Bitcoin? I said, no. He said, it's amazing. It's the future. All you've got to do is, is turn your computer on all the time and it will mine and create. Yeah, it will create you money. And I said, that is crazy. I worked out the energy prices, nothing like today's, but I worked out the energy was was insane uh, compared to what he was making from it. And he no. said, but it will increase. I said, no. Go on about six, seven years. I kid you not. I went past him in his personalized number plate Porsche. He's bought a house in the new forest and he said, Bitcoin worked. And I remember just thinking, oh, you're absolutely right. But he, he used the system brilliantly. And there will be a few absolutely <laughs> lovely, lovely case scenarios. Early adopters though, isn't it? That's the point. It was, <laughs> I think they reported it was, if you'd had a thousand dollars of Bitcoin in 2011, this time last year, so 10 years time would be worth 10 and a half million. But it's a very different story now to some of us later doctors. I mean, I'll, I'll include myself in that. And, and there's a story, you were talking about coffee. There's this yeah. I think who paid 10 Bitcoin for some pizzas. And I think he probably feels pretty sick at the thought of those pizzas nowadays. But yeah. I think you're right. People at the start, I mean, it was, it was a form of encouraging, as you say, mining and you know, using that, you know, to, to validate transactions in the blockchain. Mm-hmm. Early adopters even saw that wealth grow and it was new and exciting. And now the people who are diving in now, the people who aren't experienced in that world, they are, it is an investment. It's, oh, it's, it's treated as an investment. But, but yeah, it's just slowed down. So that, that return on investment, it is still possible, but you've got to have the money, like gambling, to afford to lose it. You really could lose everything not just for the fact that it's so volatile, but the scams. And I mean, if you talk about the scam side of things, this is what I was 
really discussing with you earlier about the con side of things because people go out to the pubs with their mates. There'll no doubt be one person who goes, hey guys, I've been into Bitcoin for a while. I've made some money. It's really cool. I'm investing in the right places. I've got these amazing feeds that are coming into me with all the the tip-offs, just like your classic horse trading of the 80s. And they would be telling those stories to other people. They'll go home maybe after a few beers and go, you know what? Jeff down the pub, he's got a great idea. I'm going to jump on the internet and see what I can do. And if you just type in cryptocurrency, you're going to find all sorts of crazy websites, not just the real the real ones, like let's say Coinbase, for example, I'd say it was pretty legit, but there are some other, say, dodgy ones. And there are different ways, of course, you can go and store your cryptocurrencies. But if you put it into a wallet, for example, you can lose those wallets. This is the sad thing. You might think it's it's incredibly robust, but it's not. It's not like you've got the insurance of a bank. It's just safe custody of it. Yes, absolutely. It's not like uh, you know, gold can be stolen. But if it's got stolen from the bank's vault, you're going to be given some sort of money back. But if you use your digital wallet because you've been conned out of giving someone your one-time password, then you're going to be sat around going, right, can, can I have my £20,000 back, anyone? And everyone, unfortunately, on the internet laughs at you for that. I guess... I mean, this is a, a sort of three part. The first part of this question is how, if someone's looking at or already has you know, digital asset crypto, they, or they're invested, or they, you know, how they're using it, how what can they do to best secure their holding, their assets? And then from that, based on what you're saying about the protection, let's say of gold stolen from a bank, do you think a scenario that needs increased regulation? Does it need centralization, for instance? And what do you think of talks of there being sort of central bank cryptocurrencies, the, the old CBDCs, as they're called, so central bank digitized currencies? Okay, first of all, I love the concept. I've got to get that across because I really do still love it. I, I don't think that's me being with my early adoption head on it. I think the idea of cryptocurrency is pretty cool. And it's got a future if dealt with correctly. But as part of your first question, as we're still in this very volatile area, very decentralized, the whole blockchain, which I love, I think the blockchain is genius. It's yeah. got many uses beyond currency, doesn't oh, absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, God, c- coming from a law firm, I just see this as the future. Yeah. Um, of transactions. It's it's fast. We've got another podcast on smart contracts and electric electric world, electronic world. I will be listening to that. Yeah, that's my (laughs) (laughs) that's my kind of thing. But we're not there yet. So I think to answer the first part, you've really got to spread your bets. Just like a typical gambler would would have a mindset. Look, don't throw all on on red. For example, you you, you, to- you totally yeah you spread it across different platforms because although I've mentioned Coinbase, you know they're not completely one hundred percent secure. No one is, and if it's hmm. written in there that if you lose your money or if they get hacked, you don't get anything back. Well, that's it all gone. So if you spread it across different quality platforms that have got the uh, the due diligence behind them to prove their wealth and their protection. And I think that puts you in a stronger position. But does it need well, government policy and help? I do think so, actually. Now, a lot of true cryptocurrency gurus out there would, would hate me saying that. But that comes back to my point. Yeah, that's, it goes against the whole ethos, doesn't it? It does. But that comes back to my point that I believe in the idea. The technology is amazing. The blockchain is so 
good. You can't go and hack the past, as I always tend to call it. It's it's kind of proven there, which other technologies don't offer that secure protection to go and look back on. And therefore, if the government were to just help and regulate it a little bit, maybe even 50-50, just, just have some sort of interaction, I do think it can go forward. But I think we're in this stalemate position at the moment. We've got to a stage where people are starting to walk away from cryptocurrency. No one's using it to buy anything because they think it's going to go and triple in price next year or whatever. It could do whatever. And therefore, we just need to wait for this time to settle and then we move forward. And with the government behind us, I think it's got something. They are, I know, the government are looking at plans to legislate what it calls the financial market infrastructure. It's basically creating like a sandbox to enable businesses to experiment and in innovate the providing this sort of infrastructure to underpin the markets and test DLTs of distributed ledger technology. So it's, mm. I mean, I think we're definitely moving towards that. Whether it'll be a 50-50, I think they're going to want to go more 70-30, you know. Likely, yeah, absolutely. I think we've just got to work together on this. We can't just say, right, this is ours as the public, as the as decentralised network of people there is, but we do need help and support. And I think if you think about it, you're going to get more people invest in it if mm. you've got a little bit of security and insurance, if you want to call it that, yeah. because then you'll get people that aren't, say, technically minded, understand it more than if they make a mistake, they've got that insurance, which is why the banks work so well. And, and Jake, have you seen it on a, have you, had, have you done any advice on a, you know, or for corporations or large institutions that are either looking to get into it in terms of using perhaps mm. cryptocurrency as a, a way of transferring value for deals or whatever it might be, or looking to invest in it? And they say to you, how best do we hold this, use it, exchange it? I don't know if you've come across. Yeah, similar similar to as you would as a just a, a customer or, or well consumer of bitcoin to spread those bets understand the technology don't just go on a hunch if it's a big company get a group of people to really understand it and to agree on the best course of action i wouldn't necessarily go and use it just yet a lot of banks are already just sitting mm. at jp morgan for example i know that they were quite early in in saying we've bought a load of bitcoin and we're going to sit on it that was probably future-proofing themselves, yeah. great move, and that made me really respect them as a bank to admit that as well. I don't think anyone's going to get rid of it just yet, but it's a finite currency. I think we are going to see at some point in our lifetime that it runs out, and which is a crazy concept, yes. but there's enough. Will that yeah. increase the value or reduce the value? We, we don't really know. And I think there's so many unknowns at the moment, we're not seeing it mm. necessarily yet. But there, there are lots of stories about the police force I find really fascinating when they've seized Bitcoin. There was an interesting story earlier on this year where they, they seized some Bitcoin and then mm. they had to, um, to give it back after a certain amount of time. But it, of course, it increased in value. So did they then give back the same amount in, in sterling or were they meant to give the whole amount back in Bitcoin value? Yeah, oh, it's so interesting. And if you do it that way, then if it drops in value, you're saying you've got different arguments there. That's right. I mean, I've seen this a lot of the time. In fact, there was another one where you saw a company had had it had all their Bitcoin taken, but they found finally found the suspects, the culprits that had stolen it. They got it. Now, do they give the same amount back? They'd actually made money so much, about three times as much money over the time. 
and they had insurance, so they'd got the money back. And it just throws out this, this new area. This is the thing. We've got policing and technology with huge gray areas. And when you've got regulations involved, it takes forever for these things to get signed off. It just takes far too long. Difficult in your job, for example, these laws are very slow to adapt and change. And it throws us into this bit of a quandary of what to do. The biggest issue for us with this is the tracing and then the enforcement and those issues, particularly with cryptocurrencies, because you've got the cross-jurisdictional issues. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you, you can sue someone and get an order to say, absolutely, get your Bitcoin back. But then how do you actually do that in practice? You know, it's as useful as suing a sheep. Which is, very, which is a very strange phrase, but that's not one I've heard before. But you, you get the gist, you know, someone could just completely abscond with that. Yeah, you've got very difficult laws involved going cross-country. And this is another way of criminals having the upper hand. They are far out in front. We are quite a few steps behind in law enforcement terms. And it's very difficult to go and prove it, get a subpoena or whatever. Mm. It's so, so difficult. And this is, again, something that we are continually looking at as a country and as a government. But there are countries that are never going to work with us. We've just made it harder with Brexit. But then if you look into the African countries or, or wherever, you, you make it very difficult because we haven't got this international law very well set up. And, of course, criminals know where to use it and know how to abuse it. Yeah, and I know the Law Commission are looking at unifying the law around this and looking at from an international perspective to do that. But as you say, we're playing catch up. So, but it's interesting what you were saying about JP Morgan because I know they're, in, I think 2017, their chief executive, Jamie Dimon, I think it was, who compared it, despite what you were saying about investment, he compared the uh, investment to Bitcoin to the, the tulip mania in the 1600s about it being such a, a bubble. It's a really interesting analogy. There's um, another podcast Kieran and I are talking on. We were talking about mm. the case of tulip trading, they're called. And I think the clue should have been in the name there. But even the biggest, I guess, backers have shied away from it. I mean, well, I guess the most notable one is Mr. Musk, isn't it? Yeah, this is it. When Musk just sneezes, it can affect the price of Bitcoin through Twitter. Uh, it, it is wild how it can go up and down like that. But there are so many people invested in it. I, I can't see it going away just yet. But everyone's looking for the next big thing. You see a positive view. Is the future bright and rosy, do you think? I think it is for the blockchain. I really do. And I, I will um, heavily bet on that. I can just see the blockchain taking its time, but definitely in my lifetime. I'll look back and say, I'm pretty sure I saw that coming. And cryptocurrency just goes hand in hand with it. But your smart contract discussion, I'm sure it's going to be fascinating. I had a wonderful chat with a solicitor's firm last year about this. And just seeing the speed in which things can just go makes it so much more effective and efficient for everyone. So I think the, the other things that come along up and down the way, things like NFTs, I must admit, I, I see them as a bit of a joke. They were huge last year because it was the next big thing. But of course, then it just dropped off as quickly as they came in. And we'll see that throughout. But the underlying bit we've got there is the blockchain. You know, that's the technology that I'm interested in. It's the technology, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but it was the same with pretty much every bubble you see. I mean, there was, we talk about the dot-com bubble, but the internet's still here. We're using uh, the internet itself as technology 
has changed the world. What the bubble related to was a particular part of it where people were almost looking just to make money for money's sake without actually deriving the real value in that product, that offering. I think you're right. I think blockchain offers exactly that. Cryptocurrency has to, happens to be one child of blockchain mm. that people have jumped on, but mm. all the other benefits that blockchain can offer like smart contracts, I think are absolutely right. And actually, I think from a dull lawyer's perspective, the law is better equipped at dealing with things like smart contracts because the law is there and it ties in quite nicely. Mm. Yeah, and you can speed up the time that things changed. Uh, I think that's always one of the laughable things about the industry and the way laws are formed and, and how they change. It just takes so long. And people haven't got time these days. You're, you're comparing that to the internet, which is instant. And you see fads go in 24 hours these days. We've got to keep up with that idea and that ideal in all industries. And I think if blockchain is there with smart contracts, it does go hand in hand. I mean, buying a car, for example, you can prove so much more with a smart contract, get it done and dusted. Maybe even the sale of a house. You could like a house and get everything done within probably, I don't know, 72 hours. It, but it took me eight months to buy my house. It's a joke. That was in COVID times. If that could be done in 72 hours, wouldn't that be lovely? Well, there's already a company offering it in California, isn't it? There is. It's well, called there you go. Propy, yeah. It's an interesting one to look at. I like that. I think governments, even even Kenya, are looking at making a you know, smart contract and land registry portal. Yeah, that's just amazing. But there are, of course, the cynics out there that are saying that the uh, the law firms out there are keeping it back because they want it to take longer. But um, well, that's... Well, we're talking to uh, <laughs> firm. We were the first ones to adopt the qualified electronic signatures for a property transaction as a pilot scheme in the land registry. So it's one of those... I think you're right, though. I think it's one of those things that people are afraid to explore. But actually, if you're an early adopter or embracer of the technology, mm-hmm. I think there's huge benefits. And it will streamline processes and... Look, the fact is, even with the best will in the world, no pun intended, there's always going to be issues over interpretation. You know, does the code reflect the intentions of the parties? Or, you know, if you're dealing with any transaction, what constitutes the terms of the contract? If someone does, you know, in terms of purchase, let's say you have to do X, Y, Z to achieve that. What does that X, Y, Z look like? There's... A lot of areas. We've got to iron those things out. I really think we we need to go slowly on it. And that's why I'm not too frustrated that blockchain hasn't taken over the world just yet. Because I think if we rush into it and we make it wrong, we are going to see people just poo-poo it and think, what is the point? We already have people laughing at NFTs. And I laugh at NFTs. I made one just to sell it. And it was hilarious. Just me doing a dad dance gif. I sold it for $2 and it cost me something like $80 to create and sell. It was a joke. But I think the idea of someone owning digital art isn't too crazy. It does sound crazy when I actually said it out loud, but it isn't too far-fetched. With the blockchain, if you get it right with people, with processes and contracts and get it right from the outset, it is something that's going to take off. So let's not go too quick into it. You're already talking about a Californian company already doing it. It usually does start in California, which is great. But as it spreads across the world, make the problems occur elsewhere who can deal with it. And then we buy it as a service effectively. And then when you take it on with this country, everyone just goes, wow, why have we never done it like this before? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a 
great place to wrap up, actually, Jay. That was a, a nice, nice place to leave it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much, Jay. It's been a pleasure. You're very welcome. I enjoyed that. Well, we'll we'll try and do another one at some point, and we'll keep you anytime. But yeah, thank you very much. And now we come to our Ask the Experts segment, the part of the podcast where you, the listener, get to ask us a crypto or digital asset question, which we'll do our best to answer. So today's question is a great one. It's, shouldn't there be a referendum for something that changes our monetary system so fundamentally as a GBP CBDC? It's a really interesting question. And I suspect, given the question, my answer might include a fair amount of jargon, but I'll do my best to keep it simple. So First of all, let's explain what we mean by a CBDC. A CBDC is short for a central bank digital currency. So you've all heard of digital currencies like Bitcoin, Ether, often referred to as Ethereum, and Elon Musk's current cryptocurrency, the Jour, Dogecoin. Well, these are all decentralized digital currencies. That means they aren't issued by central banks, such as, say, the Bank of England. Instead, they're used and traded peer-to-peer or person-to-person, without the intervention of a government or other middleman or body. And that decentralized nature of any cryptocurrencies has made them really popular, as their proponents argue that they offer greater protection from hacking, increased transparency, aren't currently regulated, and potentially have lower transaction costs. And some of these espoused benefits are seen by others as downsides, particularly given the lack of regulation, their purely digital nature, and the fact that many are either not linked or pegged, to use the relevant jargon, to any underlying assets such as fiat currency. Fiat currency is basically government-issued and backed currency. Or tend to be through the use of, so while some of them may not be pegged, or those that are, they try to be pegged through the use of complex algorithms, which have demonstrated vulnerabilities, such as the one which led to the Terra Luna crash, which saw the value in that currency drop 99% in just 48 hours. So a central bank digital currency is a digital currency or token which is issued by a central bank and which is pegged or linked to that central bank's fiat currency. So in this instance, the GBP of the GBP CBDC stands for Great British Pound, i.e. sterling to you and me. Why this question is so interesting is the Bank of England, which despite the name is the UK central bank, is considering creating a government-backed digital currency linked to sterling. And the reason they say for that is obviously there's been a huge amount of interest and upsurge in digital currencies. And the past 10 years, we've seen cash transactions fall from approximately 20 billion per annum to around 5 billion per annum, while transactions by alternative means, such as payments by phone, online banking, and obviously digital exchange, have increased in that same period from around 15 billion to around 30 billion. However, they're not at the moment looking at replacing good old-fashioned cash, but rather running a GBP CBDC alongside them for the time being. So proponents of CBDC, central bank decentralized currencies, or digital currencies rather, say that they create faster, more efficient, cheaper, as bank fees are reduced, and more reliable payments. They can provide innovation and can also provide a digital currency solution to people, which is less volatile than decentralized cryptocurrencies. Those arguing against them say that they go against the very spirit and ethos of cryptocurrencies that can be used by less 
scrupulous governments, let's say, or even any governments really, to track individuals more easily and can thereby really threaten privacy and could lead to increased risks of hacking. Anyway, getting to the question, should there be a referendum on this? Well, in a word, no. That's my view anyway. And the reason for that is that, first of all, there's no constitutional requirement to hold a national referendum. We, the people, you and I, as citizens, vote a government in and in turn give it authority to govern and, along with Parliament, to make laws. While there's been much debate over the years on whether we should move away from a first-past-the-post system to a system of proportional representation, currently the way we elect our MPs is on a first-past-the-post basis, whereas referendums are voted on by proportional representation. So some say they're unconstitutional. Others argue that they're simply a way of a governing party to derogate from its responsibilities and authority which has been given and with which it's entrusted to lead and make the right decisions on behalf of its citizens. And many have cited the damage that referendums have done, creating big rifts in society. I won't delve into, obviously, any recent referendums, but I think we all know the issues that have potentially arisen from those. However, my reason while acknowledging all of that is also a lot simpler, and it's because the Bank of England plans to consult on this question. As such, it should be open to members of the public, to you, to me, to, I sound like one of the Chuckle Brothers, but should we want our views heard to respond to that consultation? So consultations, much like those which the Law Commission regularly undertakes, which you know, uh, Kieran and I have spoken about one of the Law Commission consultations at the moment in the concept of digital assets, but they can be a fair and positive way of inviting members of the public to provide feedback on issues on which they feel very strongly. However, they also generally invite views from experts in their respective fields. And so with an issue such as digital currencies, my concern is that there's a real danger that the real potential pros and cons might get lost in a war on misinformation, mudslinging and questionable social media campaigns if it's left open to a referendum. Whereas with a consultation process and one which is vetted by experts in that specific field, and it, it is a complex field and it does need expertise, then it hopefully enables a proper valued judgment. So, you know, as is everyone's democratic right, if you want to say, then make sure you look out for the consultation and feedback. Hope that answers the question. And there we have it. That wraps up our podcast for today. Thanks for listening to Lawyers on the Block. If you made it this far, then you clearly enjoyed it. So why not subscribe to make sure you hear the next episode as soon as it comes out. Remember, nothing on this podcast is financial or legal advice. But if you do want to talk to a lawyer about any crypto issues that you may have, then please do get in touch at crypto at hughjames.com. 